0: Hi, Mentor fans. This is your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. Sorry, I've been missing in action for a while. Between the pandemic, some new professional opportunities and my family, I just haven't had time to devote to this podcast. I was able to record this episode due to the interest and persistence of a medical student who reached out to me during the 2022 match. I am happy to say he is now an otolaryngology resident and was able to navigate a successful match despite not having a home program. This is episode 38, applying to otolaryngology residency without a home program. As usual, all opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. Let's get started. I'm excited to be joined today by two guests. The medical student I was telling you about, who's now an otolaryngology resident, is Neil Kondamuri. He graduated from Brown University's Alpert Medical School. After studying economics and public policy in college, he worked in healthcare policy for two years before deciding to pursue a career in medicine. He has returned home to Chicago for his otolaryngology residency at the University of Chicago Medical Center. My second guest is Dr. Jan Grablewski, he's the director of pediatric otolaryngology. At Hasbro Children's Hospital and an Associate Professor of Surgery and Pediatrics at Brown University's Albert Medical School. He completed medical school at the University of Pittsburgh, residency at Georgetown University, and a pediatrics fellowship at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C.
1: Welcome to the show, Neil and Jan.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having us.
1: My pleasure. So a lot of students have been clamoring for this episode about applying to otolaryngology without a home program, especially with all of the new medical schools that have been started in the last 10 years. So Neil, tell me about how you, you know, decided on ENT and how that process worked when you're coming from, a, from an institution without a home program.
2: Yeah, well, I was very fortunate to have discovered ENT pretty early in my medical school career. Then I would also say that I was pretty fortunate to have great mentors in Dr. G as well as other folks around the country. Really early exposure to research was lucky to kind of network into certain places, and then just felt fortunate to have applied successfully. I think without a home program, some of those some of those components like research and networking can be a little bit harder to uh, discover. So I felt very fortunate to have kind of found those pieces.
1: So Jan, tell me about what it's like to be a faculty at a program without, you know, residency and what kinds of things does that change about how you counsel medical students?
3: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. You know, I, it was one of the things that drew me to this job, actually, because I knew that I wanted to be somewhere where I was able to participate in teaching and mentorship But on paper, it was daunting because we didn't have our own program here at Brown. We are fortunate enough here at Brown to have residents from another program who rotate with us. So um, we are able to participate in residency training as well, but they are not our own residents. In fact, we are the only specialty, you know, if you consider the primary specialties that does not have a residency at Brown now. So we'll see if that changes over time. But for now, we remain in this unique position, which, again, on paper is somewhat daunting, but has turned out to be really rewarding. I certainly didn't expect to have the challenges associated with that uh, in helping mentor medical students going into ENT. And I look forward to kind of diving into some of that today during this podcast. Because it is tricky and we really have to ensure that we have good communication with the students from the beginning and that they are the type of students who can be very resourceful because it it takes, I would argue, uh, even more effort than it does in 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 an institution where you have a, a robust residency training program.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that. So, just for logistic questions, um, how big is the medical school at Brown?
2: There's 120 students in each class. I can tell you that much. Uh, okay.
1: And then how? And then what uh, program rotates their residence with you at Brown?
2: The Tufts. Uh,
3: It's the Tufts, Tufts Otolaryngology. It's actually interesting tidbit to talk about. Uh, Brown used to have its own ENT residency many many years ago well before my time. I don't know that I saw it when I applied in 2003 for residency programs. Um, So it was well before that. But now for about 23 or 24 years, the residents from Tufts spend time with us in Providence. And there's a whole backstory to that, but it's a relationship that's uh, remained strong. And I think that does give our students more opportunity than than coming from a, a newer medical school where there's zero ENT or only community ENTs. The other thing I wanted to say too is we're, we're blessed to have kind of the, the largest medical system in the state serving as the teaching hospitals for Brown Medical School. And so they're not getting, they're, they're being trained in a, in a major hospital system that is a robust academic center in the sense that uh, we have training programs for everything else, fellowship programs, et cetera. So we're kind of the lone wolf with ENT in our hospital, but the the fact that the hospital exists like that means interesting ENT patients and complex ENT cases and uh, all of the things that you would see in, in other situations. And I think that's, that Neil would attest to this, which is that although we don't have our own residents, their their electives and rotations in ENT are pretty eye-opening and allow our students to to get a, a, a genuinely um, accurate view into what ENT is like in an academic setting.
1: Yeah. So Neil, yeah, speaking of that, uh, tell me how you kind of figured out that you are interested in ENT and, and how that process worked?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I would say without a home program is it just requires a, like Dr. G said, a large amount of resourcefulness and then a large amount of persistence. So initially, I came into med school having one prior exposure to ENT. And so I was vaguely interested in exploring it further. But I reached out a little bit over the beginning and It took a while to kind of get into the scene. And then once I was in the scene, I immediately liked it, immediately kind of uh, was lucky to have mentors that encouraged my interest. And then I think we referenced this earlier, but one of the things that I think places without home programs don't have as much of is kind of that research component and so the summer after my first year of medical school, I knew I was potentially interested in ENT. And so I actually went up to Boston and spent time in a research lab at Mass Eye and Ear. And that allowed great exposure to kind of the academic setting. It also allowed me to connect with mentors up there, as well as a resident mentor who kind of became my main, my main research contact and the person that I kept producing research with. And so That ended up being really helpful in my application. I think throughout the process, I was lucky to kind of be interested early and kind of at least mentally commit to ENT early. I know I went through most of third year kind of scared that I would find something else I was interested in. And and I think it is the right answer if you do, if you are interested in something else to kind of shift gears, but I spent all of third year scared I was gonna find something else I was interested in. And maybe we all know that that wasn't gonna happen. And so third year was great. Loved, loved kind of my clinical exposure, both in ENT and outside of ENT. But And I think one more thing I would say on the mentorship point that we do have an advantage of uh, here at Brown, the Tufts residents are really just wonderful people. And the exposure to residents uh, is a pretty unique aspect of my situation, and our situation at Brown. I think a lot of folks with at home programs don't have that exposure. And and like Dr. G said, the exposure to complex clinical cases here at Brown, both those things are things that I think we have a unique vantage point on as as students from Brown that other places with at-home programs don't necessarily have.
1: Do you in your medical school at Brown, do you have a specific anti rotation or did you have to completely seek that out on your own
2: yeah we we do have two ENT rotations we have a 2 week rotation and then a 4 week rotation that we're allowed to do during our third year during our clinical year and then we also have now a sub i in that we were able to complete at the start of fourth year
1: yeah because i think that's one of the problems that i see especially i mean even here at University of Colorado that the medical students do not rotate with us routinely it's they have to self-identify. And I think that does them a big disservice because even if you have a residency program, you know, they're not automatically seeing what ENT is all about. so.
3: So, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to build on what you just said there. I think this is applicable to, you know, most medical schools where you don't have an ENT rotation. And I think that's a disservice. I was lucky enough that when I was in medical school, we, as part of surgery, we had, I think, eight weeks of gen surge and four weeks of subspecialty. And then you got to select which ones you wanted to do. And you ended up with one week of four different subspecialties. And I was lucky to get ENT as one of those randomly. I mean, I had no idea, but I, yeah, I thought it sounded cool. But I do think, you know, the push towards primary care in a lot of medical schools, the emphasis is placed on, you know, some of the primary care specialties. And it is really hard, even in schools where you have huge ENT programs with five residents a year, some of these schools don't even have ENT rotations. So to Neil's point, for someone coming from from a program where they're not going to get exposure to ENT, whether it's because the med school does not have a residency program, or they may not be able to have that opportunity in their elective year and third year, I think that trying to find ways to have a resident mentor would be amazing. And your podcast is clearly about, about mentorship and ENT, but this would be a great springboard to kind of think about how can we help those who are at programs that don't have as much exposure? What about a program, I mean, we're lucky, we have ENT interest group, we have the, the residents come from another program. What if you don't have that? Wouldn't it be cool if through the academy we could set up mentorship connections? Maybe it's already set up where a student could get a resident mentor from another institution that would be something I would certainly recommend.
2: If I could just jump off of that, I think the idea of mentorship is just so important. And at least when I was a medical student, I didn't feel like I was aware that I needed both so many mentors, but mentors that helped in different aspects of my medical school career. And so to your point, Dr. G, I know that just to put a plug out there for the, there's a National Otolaryngology Interest Group, but you can find it on headmirror.com. I ended up getting a mentor through through that program, which was great. And then also just randomly got connected with the otolaryngologist at BU, at BMC, who who runs it. And both those connections were incredibly helpful. The woman that I was connected with was kind of at the later stage of her career. And it was just kind of a very cool conversation to get a sense of how otolaryngologic has changed over the last 40, 50 years. And so that was a really cool conversation. But then when I talked to the folks up at BU, who one of whom was in charge of the National Lungology Interest Group, she was just able to evaluate my application as a whole and and kind of give me just this great sense of how competitive I actually was, which I found to be a really hard thing to kind of gauge. We all know the kind of various metrics, but we all also don't have a great sense of where we sit and we're above on some and below on others. And and it's great to just have someone else judge your application very honestly and very openly. And I think that type of mentor is also another one that that is just really
1: important. Yeah. I'm curious how you found each other as mentor-mentee relationship. Dr. G and I? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Dr. G is the ENT guy at Brown. I think if anyone has an ENT question, we go to Dr. G. And, and he's just such a valuable uh, person here at Brown, but just such a wonderful contact. so easy to talk to, as you can see, so open. With students coming by, if anything, it's the problem would be that there's so many students that are interested in Dr. G that, he's inundated with requests. And so, and I know as a first year, it's, it's so hard to get in touch with Dr. G. And, and I think a lot of that too, is like a lot of pandemic things can be hard to get into the office, but Dr. G is just an incredible resource. He actually used to live down the street from me. So I'd see him all the time. Now he just moved, So I don't get to see him as often, but it's great having Dr. G around.
3: I had to move away. It was too awkward to run into students <laughs> on my front porch. No, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, Yeah, I think it's been a real priority for me to help ameliorate the situation for our medical students in terms of opportunity to go into ENT. So I've been here for about 12 years now, and and we had students go into ENT prior to that, but I've certainly... Gained great joy and 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 career satisfaction about from being involved with the, the Brown medical students and trying to grow what we have here because it is a unique situation and there are challenges that come with that. So it, it's been it's been great. It's been hard, but it's been great. And uh, now we're looking ahead to an unbelievable number of first and second years who are interested in ENT. So we'll we'll see how that pans out. Uh, over the next couple of years, but we're excited that things have grown here and, and we've gotten more and more interest. Obviously, there's a limit to how many people can go into ENT in general, but that's for another podcast. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah as evidenced by the greater than 200 more applications than spots last year, which is really frustrating when advising students too. Uh, I'm curious, Jan, when you advise students I mean, are you very, like, blunt and, and honest with them, you know, based on their, well, now it's not going to be step scores anymore. Well, at least not step one anymore, but based on their research, based on, you know, other factors?
3: I think that's a great question and topic to discuss. Personally, as as someone who's mentored medical students for 11, 12 years now, I was not as good at that in the beginning. and. I think that's a natural evolution. As you do it for longer, you can be more upfront and blunt about uh, one's candidacy, about your student's candidacy. I work very closely with our GME office, and they've been wonderful. And I have a good rapport with several people there who have really helped me to, um, and we've helped each other to to learn more about uh, how to best guide applicants in ENT, because I've kind of been learning on the fly too. I don't have a mentor who said to me, oh, this is how I always did it. Here's how you do it. I've kind of had to invent a lot of that myself. Now, I do have my colleagues at Tufts who I am very close with and been mentors and guides for me, and we can always rely on them if we need to. But the GME office here has also been great. But to your point, we have to be very careful about how should I say this? Just helping people determine what their you know candidacy is. I it's not that we're afraid of someone not matching, but I think given the circumstances of not having our own home program, there's almost a bias out there from the ENT residency program directors when they see that. Now we have the benefit of having an Ivy League name with our medical school. So that does help us. But I'm there on the flip side too, when I'm looking at applicants for Tufts residency, because I help with that process. And there is this bias when you say, oh, what's this medical school? I I didn't know that it even had a medical school, right? And so I think you're up against it when you're in this situation. So we do have to be very cautious about guiding our students and helping them through this. I can't meet with someone in a a second year and expect them to have all kinds of research and publication, right? But I also need to say, what can we feasibly help the student accomplish before in the next, you know, 18 months before they have to apply? So, I, I do think there's some innuendos, so to speak, with respect to, to how we guide students in a, in a situation like ours. And sometimes you do need to be blunt, but um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's also must be a little tricky because, you know, as, as a program director, I'm reviewing all the applications every year. Right. So I know what the average is, you know, I know what the median is. And so I can say it's almost a little easier because I can be, I can say, Well, the average applicant is applying with X number of research publications. And then it's not me just being mean, (laughs) right? Which you don't want to be. You want to be encouraging because it is obviously the best field subspecialty out there, right? But I think the other, the other piece of that is I will say that I specifically look at students without a home program. I look at their other productivity and you know, if they've been part of a, you know, a leader in a national organization, or if they have multiple publications, they get more points in my book, because I know how much harder that must have been. So I'm curious to hear Neil, how you found some research opportunities and, and how you address that portion.
2: Yeah, I mean, we are so fortunate geographically to be located between a ton of great schools. So I actually just, leading into the summer of my first year, I cold emailed um, otolaryngology programs in New Haven and Boston, up at Dartmouth, all over New England, really, and just kind of saw what filtered back. I was hoping to be in New England because my fiance lived there, or sorry, Boston, because my fiance lived there, and an otologist at Mass I knew sent me an email back. It was extremely fortuitous because when he received my email, someone I knew happened to be standing right next to him and vouched for me right at that point. And so it was just this amazing situation. And I had an awesome summer up there. And so I was very fortunate to gotten that opportunity. It was really fortuitous, very lucky. And then my background prior to medical school is predominantly in healthcare care policy. Um, I studied economics and public policy. And so I was very fortunate that this mentor recognized that and connected me with a resident who kind of had very similar interests. And so we just were able to kind of keep producing research that was interesting to really both of to to both of us. So I think a couple of lucky breaks and then uh, a couple of interests that aligned helped me a lot. I think also the interest being somewhat different than kind of clinical type bench, even bench research also just helped me
1: so once you decided once you've got all this mentorship once you have made your application as good as possible how did you figure out where you wanted to apply where you wanted to do away rotations and speak a little bit to also if you can like the covid times right because it's there's definitely more restrictions than there used to be
2: yeah that's such an amazing question so the first thing that I want to say is that it took a lot of strategizing. I was not willy-nilly about it at all. Um, I think for me, location was extremely important because the idea of being in a city was really important, especially for my fiance's profession. And then so I i guess there was a couple of things that I thought about. One was talking with residents um, at various programs, less to get a sense of kind of how they do head and neck or how they do various rotations, but more just to get a sense of how I felt on the call with them. Did this feel like a person that I could fit in with or a group that I could fit in with? Oftentimes, the best marker of one of those calls was when I was when I found myself laughing the whole call. I knew that that was probably a good place for me. But I think the the strategy was really, where did I want to be? The second thing I thought of was, who did I want to get a letter from? Who did I think that maybe I could develop a rapport with? simply based on an online profile. And then the last thing I was very cautious in thinking about was how likely was the program going to be to take an away rotator. And so I was very consciously looking at their past residents and whether they had rotated at that program, which sometimes with a lot of Googling, you can figure out. And so I was very careful about kind of doing that research and figuring that out. I think in the one thing with COVID is that the initial regulations that came out, I think from the AMC, was that there was only one away rotation allowed and it had to be after August 1st. However, there was this, this little qualifier about students without a home program. And it was that qualifier was what I was banking the whole my whole strategy on was that I wanted to do two away rotation, then it depended on that one line. And so I had emails back and forth with folks at Brown, mostly on the administrative side about whether this was feasible. This is kind of what I was saying also about the importance of being persistent. I was rejected almost five to 10 different times from folks here at Brown because of the kind of vagueness of that policy and had to just keep coming back and keep just politely arguing that, hey, this is what the Posse says, I should be allowed to do this. And even when I applied for away rotations, I think folks weren't really aware of what this was, whether that was coming from the otolaryngology department or the university as a whole. And so definitely a lot of persistence, a lot of resourcefulness and kind of pushing and saying, hey, I'm coming from a place without an away rotation. I literally don't necessarily have enough letters to apply without some of these away rotations. Like, please let me have two and so really advocated there i think another thing that is that is seems more amenable during the covid age that i did there was actually a jam article that suggested this so this wasn't my idea there was an article written by a bunch of program directors about the importance of mentorship in the virtual age and even just hopping on a zoom and doing a zoom call with a program director or a chair and so for a couple programs that i was really interested in i just reached out and said hey can i put a face to my name i'm really interested in your program I only did that for three places, two of which I ended up doing away rotations. At. That worked out really well. And I think even when I stepped into my away rotation, suddenly the person I was going to be asking for my letter already knew me over a 30-minute Zoom. And so that was extremely helpful as far as the letters go. And then I guess the last thing to just think about, and this is a logistical thing, is the timelines can be tricky to work out. And I know you've done a podcast on away rotation. The timelines can always be tricky. And so Nailing that down is always the last thing to be thinking about.
1: Sure. What advice do you give, Jana, for the students who are trying to choose a ways? I,
3: I want I want to answer that, but I also wanted to just build on what Neil just mentioned about COVID. There have been two application cycles with COVID so far. And the first one was different than the second one. The first time, you know, basically you weren't allowed to go anywhere. So that's when we decided at Brown to develop a sub-internship. We had one applicant that year who was very anxious about what to do. And so we developed a sub-internship specifically for him because traditionally we hadn't done our a sub-I here at Brown. We had uh, recommended that they do a sub-I at Tufts as a pseudo-home program since our residents are from Tufts. And that's worked out well. But when it came to Neil's class, we were a little bit anxious about it because we didn't know if we could let them do a pseudo sub i at Tufts, a sub i at Brown, and then do two more. But we wanted them to because we wanted them to get as much exposure as possible, and for all the reasons Neil said, we needed to diversify their letters of recommendation. Which is like is another take home point from this podcast for someone from a institution without a program. It's very important to get diversified letters of recommendation. So we were nervous. We didn't want it to look bad or it to reflect poorly if someone looked and said, how did this guy finagle his way into three away rotations when he was only supposed to do one? You know. So we had to be careful there. And we did a lot of thinking and talking with various programs about that. And it worked out well because in theory, Neil, I think you did if you count the sub-eye at Brown, you did three, four-week sub-eyes, and then you did a few weeks at Tufts also. So I think that was immense for uh, Neil's class from our program, but we did do a lot of thinking and careful kind of navigating to make sure that happened. When in general, let's say non-COVID, how do we guide our students? Well, we we do usually tell them here at a from our institution to kind of maximize their sub eyes, So, we're typically looking at one sub eye through Tufts and then three away sub eyes. In terms of where, <laughs> you know, I think that's where mentorship comes in again. You have to be careful. I, I certainly, many years ago, I had a student who was shooting for the stars, so to speak, and kind of Picked all reach programs for his aways, and you know after one or two called me and I had a long talk with him, and he said, I, you know, I'm just not sure this is the type of program for me. I think I want to, I think I'd feel fit more with the Tufts program. He kind of had put all of his eggs into one basket, so to speak, and I think that was not good for his application. So you do have to be careful about. The types of programs that you go to, I try to have students find a balance between smaller, larger programs, and maybe programs with no fellows and programs with fellows. I think that's a nice balance. And then a lot of times it comes down to geography. Do you, where do you want to be? Do you have a significant other? Do you have family and you want to be close to your grandmother? Whatever it might be. I think that dictates dictates it a lot, a lot of the time.
1: Yeah. For us, the issue is that we're a mountain state with not a lot around us. So there's fewer programs, you know, because California is not really in our region. (laughs) It's its own thing. And Texas is its own thing. And so, uh, yeah, it's always tricky to to find geographic locations.
2: If I could just add one thing to what Dr. G was saying, I think one of the things that is just so tricky in the application cycle is to get an evaluation of your application that is a good honest assessment I think that's partly because it is so hard to assess I guess it's it can be difficult to assess what a good application looks like and and the three applicants from from Brown this year all look very different and all match successfully so that that is part of it but I like i had people telling me all different things about my application which is great in some ways but also terrifying in other ways because you don't really know exactly where you sit and at the end of the day like we were saying earlier you really just want to join this field
1: yeah well and sometimes i will say as a program director you know um i've been reviewing applications for over 10 years and i've been program director for four and sometimes i don't know and i will tell students i say look on paper you're amazing but I don't know how you're going to interview. And I don't know these, like you were saying before, when you get lucky breaks, I mean, that's really what you need. You need, you need one lucky break so that you really stick in that program's memory. And, you know, that's really what you need to match because there are accomplished, fabulous students every single year that just fall through the cracks. Yeah.
3: And, and in particular, the last few years have been so competitive. It's been quite challenging. I, I do think that it brings up the point of a point that I make to many of my students, which is one of the things they worry about the most coming from a program that doesn't have it's a medical school that doesn't have its own program. They always ask me, it's one of the first things is this. Can you even go into ENT? And I say, well, look at this list of these people who've gone into ENT over the last 15 years. But they're very focused on that, and they become very hyper-focused on the research component of the application. And I fully acknowledge that that's very important. And how I've mentored them over the years has changed as things have morphed. But at the same time, we cannot forget about the importance of everything else. You know the Neo, and we've talked about some of these things, but you know I, I've sometimes said you're too focused on research. You need to be kicking butt in all of your rotations in third year, all of them, not just surgery, not just ENT. I've seen that get in the way of people succeeding before, and if you focus so much on research, you have the most unbelievable research portfolio, but you didn't even get great comments in your third year, that's a red flag for someone in reviewing an application because the best researcher is not necessarily the best clinician or the best resident. And so that's a very important point. I think you have to have the balance between all of those things. And that's really challenging for some people to realize. And when you come from a program that doesn't, a medical school that doesn't have its own residency program, I think you almost want to overcompensate with the research part because you're so worried about that. And so I've, I've told some people like you mentioned earlier, oh yeah, this great research and something else that you did as an undergrad or you started working in plastic surgery in first year and, and this is still wonderful and valuable research experience. It still counts for something. Um, you don't have to have 10 publications in, in ENT. It can be a balance there. Anyway, I'm just talking too much about it, but I think it's it's an important thing to important point to make here, which is all of these spheres matter when you develop your application and getting some of those lucky breaks, whether it's in research, whether it's in you know, connection from an undergrad or, or something that like that, or a, a resident or whatever it might be, you know, the, all those different spheres matter.
1: Completely agree. Let's go back to the letters of recommendation. So I'm curious to know, you said you, you know, you chose away rotations on purpose to try to get your letters. And I mean, we all know that letters of recommendation are a very important part of the application. But how did you choose who was going to write your letter on your away rotation? Did you strategize to try to spend more time with that person? How did you, how did you navigate that?
2: So I guess I I didn't think too hard about it. I kind of, I guess I had been told that the chairs at programs are the folks that tend to write the letters of recommendation. And so I'd been kind of imagining that I would have the chair write my letter. Um, I know I was certainly shy about asking and in retrospect, I think they both expected that I would ask. and, And so it wasn't an awkward situation at all. As far as targeting to spend time with them, I would say in my first away rotation, I felt like I had spent a sufficient amount of time with the chair and, and felt comfortable with that person writing a letter of recommendation for me. And the second one, I just by chance of there being multiple away rotators and me just kind of our schedules not aligning, I didn't get to spend very much time with him until the last week when I was very intentional about talking to the chiefs about I'd like to spend some time with this person. In the operating room and in the clinic and was lucky to get actually back-to-back days, one in the clinic and one in the operating room with with the chair. And and at that point felt like that had been pretty sufficient. I think just kind of commenting on something in your preamble, I feel like one thing that was kind of surprising to me, I guess two things that were kind of surprising to me. One is, I guess I, I wasn't fully aware of the importance of letters of recommendation, and they are just so insanely important, like you said. And so just one more thing for the audience to kind of keep track of. And then the, the second thing is that, and this is another weird thing, but I didn't actually realize that letters of recommendation had to come from attending. I kind of went through most of medical school thinking that my resident mentor would be one of the folks writing my letters because I'd work with him so closely. At the time, he would be a senior resident. I figured that's who would write my letter. And it was only at the tail end of medical school that it dawned on me that, hey, I'm down a letter because this person is not going to be writing me one. And then had to go back to the drawing board. So just another tidbit, hopefully, that is helpful to someone.
3: Neil, did we not talk about that? I, I, I feel uh, I feel like I didn't advise you well enough if you really thought a resident was going to write your, your LOR. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Uh, I, I think uh, Neil's, Neil's points are great. I would say a couple of things. One is, and maybe this has been echoed in other podcasts, but you don't always have to have the chair write the letter of recommendation. And I do think it matters if you're too determined to be that person to get FaceTime with the chair and they happen to be out or they're not there, it, it you know, it can end up being more forced and you can end up looking more sycophantic in that situation. So you need to be a little bit cautious there. Secondly. You don't want a letter from the chair. And Dr. Cabrera, we've seen these where it says, I only spent one day with Neil, but the other attending said he's great. You know, that to me, when I read that letter as a, as someone reviewing a resident applicant, I say, this is worthless. It literally wrote in the letter. I only knew what worked with him for one day. So I think you, you have to be cautious there. And, and, You know, sometimes a more junior person may not have the name recognition, right, when someone's reviewing the applicant, but may write a banging, unbelievable letter of recommendation for you that ends up going a long way. This is definitely where it's tricky. Back fundamentally, for someone who's coming from a program that doesn't have its own residency program, sorry, a medical school, I keep saying that, coming from a medical school that doesn't have its own residency program. I do think it's important to have some type of letter from your home institution, and that can be tricky if you don't have a setup like we have at Brown. Traditionally for us here, since I've been here, I usually write the letter, and we used to do it kind of like a a dean's letter because I used to have that obligation too. That's now been taken off of my plate in the med school does it. But I can summarize a lot of information from a lot of the different attendings, and because of you know the position that i'm in i think it can be a more valuable lor however if you're at if you're somewhere where you may only get a little community hospital ent experience or maybe even just a private practice ent experience that's where you have to be cautious and thoughtful even more i think with respect to the lor but that said i think if you came from your original institution and you have someone who you can get, Write a really good letter for you who you've spent the most time with. I think that's still going to be count for something. Just some thoughts.
1: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I don't advise a lot of students from medical schools without a home program, but I think the safe bet would be to have a surgeon of some kind from your home medical school write a letter and then rely on your ways. For the others
0: in otolaryngology,
1: because you're right, I see a lot of applicants from newer medical schools, or a lot of the osteopathic medical schools too, who have letters from community otolaryngologists. And the problem with that is, I don't know how many students that otolaryngologist has worked with. There's an assumption that if you're in academics, you're working with residents and or students a lot. And so you very quickly figure out how to judge which ones are good and which ones are not so good. Whereas, you know, anybody that you work with in the community, maybe just worked with one medical student last year and one next year. And so that's where it's difficult. And that's why those letters aren't as valuable for when I review applications, just for that reason.
3: Yeah, completely agree. I've seen some letters where if it's someone who's not Academically oriented, they may write a little two two liner about how they do work with medical students. And that can be a little bit more helpful to the reader of the letter. But you're absolutely right. If if they, oh, this is the greatest med student I've worked with in 25 years. How many have you worked with? Two. You know, that that doesn't really help anybody, right? So I, I think, and that's where. Having guidance from a mentor is important too. And I think for for someone at a school where they don't have kind of the setup we have, you may need to find an attending mentor from another institution who can help help you decide on letters of rec. I mean, Neil and I talked after all of his away rotations and he said, What do you think? Should I should I ask this person or this person? Uh, you know, and I remember Dan, one of our other med students, you know, he asked me, Well, I thought I was going to ask this per person who's the program director, but I worked more with this other person. Would that be okay? And I said, well, what's your, what's your vibe? What's your feel? So you, you got to roll with, with some of that and not just expect I'm going there just to get chairman so-and-so to write the the letter.
1: Yeah. I agree. An assistant professor who writes a glowing letter and worked with you clearly for a longer period of time. It, I would rather have that letter than a chair letter who you can tell they just, they didn't even work with you, so.
3: Yeah, or it's a standardized letter that they've done for all their 18 rotating sub eyes
1: Yeah, especially sometimes when they refer to she, when it's a, a male applicant. And you oh, jeez, yeah. <laughs> <They happen>. Yes. <laughs> well, good. Um, well, so kind of wrapping it up here, anything else that you want to share that you feel is really critically important?
2: I guess two things, um, one would be, and this is on the topic of letters of recommendation, but really on your away rotation. I found that the keys for, I, I walked into away rotations feeling like I was at some sort of disadvantage because we didn't have a home program. Having said that, we had our sub eye and that was incredibly helpful that other students may have, may, may not have, but I still walked in feeling like I was at some sort of disadvantage. On the back end of away rotations, I was surprised that there was really two things that went really far and it was working hard and that you can do that whether you have a home program or whether you don't have a home program. And that's studying the ENT secrets and Pasha and kind of the big things that we all know about. So that's the one thing that can go really far and that has nothing to do whether you have a home program. And then the second thing being just getting along well with your team um, and your other med student rotators. I think that that is just, again, not dependent on whether you have a home program or not. And both those things can carry you so far. And then the second thing I was going to say was just, and it's, we haven't talked about this yet, but I found signals to be extremely helpful. I did. I don't know if they're gonna be continuing, but I found them to be extremely helpful. And me and my two uh, home students at Brown were extremely strategic about not sending signals to any of the same programs. So there's four signals that we each had and we sent them to 12 different programs and we communicated about that. And we actually each gave up a signal to a program to each other because we had a little bit of overlap To So to ensure there was no overlap, we each gave one up. And I think that type of collaboration Towards ensuring that all all of us match was really helpful, and to the extent that that's possible, that can only help students who don't have home programs match.
3: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I just wanted to go back, just not to belabor the discussion about research, but having gone through this last cycle with three students from Brown, Neil being one of them, I really got to see some phenomenal resourcefulness that was partly related to our situation here, but also related to the COVID pandemic. And all three of our students pivoted in different ways to continue to grow their application despite the limitations of COVID. For some of our first and second years, we haven't for, you know, for almost a year, we weren't even able to really have them in the office to shadow. So they weren't able to get those ENT experiences as much. And what we saw from Neil and his classmates was pivoting like I've never seen. And they were all very creative and being resourceful, not only here at Brown, but also at other institutions. They utilized social media and connections from undergrad and from people they met on head mirror or, or things like that to create research projects out of nothing. And we did a, with another student, we did a phenomenal research project with two other institutions on the virtual interview process. And we did it all by email and it was fantastic. And it's published and fantastic. So there are ways to be creative COVID taught us that more than than anything but I think it is applicable to students who are at institutions without programs because you can find ways to collaborate more than ever before via email, social media, etc. So I would encourage students to do that and even at our institution too the last point I wanted to make is there are a lot of things that overlap with ENT. It's one of the cool things about our specialty, right? So you can do, you know, at Brown we have this well-known graduate school program where the the main researcher studies the olfactory nerve. And and I've been trying to get students to get into his lab because that would be totally pertinent and amazing and has nothing to do with ENT and I've never even met the guy, but it would still be one way you can be creative and resourceful at an institution without a robust residency program or research opportunities by looking to see what else your institution has to offer. And we're lucky here at Brown because that is immense when you get into the graduate schools and everything that that has to offer. So I I do think, you know, one of the take-home points for me is we need to have students who are willing to be creative and resourceful and think outside of the box and uh, that can lead to success.
1: Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast and sharing all these great tips. I'm sure that the students will appreciate it, uh, both from places with residency programs and places that don't have residency programs. It's all great advice. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, so thank
3: you so much for uh, having us. Really appreciate it. We're happy to share our contact info if anyone wants to reach out to us.
0: OK, thanks for listening.